appreciate you being able to step up and kind of adapt to changing circumstances. Boys and girls, I think Mr. Todd has got some uh, Bible bingo stuff if you want to head downstairs with them. But of course, you're welcome to stay if you'd like <coughs> in here. While they're heading down, I want to make a few commercial announcements. <coughs> You'll notice if you've been paying attention um, online to some of the stuff that Todd has been sending out, not only the daily Proverbs, but he's been sending out a question and people have been able to comment and answer. And he's going to do a little drawing this week to give to the, somebody who's been answering that. But I wanted to let you know of this. We, these are just those types of coffee mugs that have some uh, scriptures on them. This one has Proverbs 31:25, And of course, this one has, has a scripture on as well. If you would like one of these, um, I'm just going to, for $20, we can get you one. If this is something that would be meaningful to you and you'd like for when you take some of your coffee in the morning, we're not making anything off of that, obviously, but if you would like one, I mean, you can go online. Some of you are savvy. You can do that yourself. But I just thought, hey, that'd be a neat way when I saw it. If you wanted to get one of those just after the service, just um, <clears throat> put in, you know, let, let Todd or myself know, and we'll get you one of those coffee mugs that each day will remind you of the Proverbs. Also, if you would like, I have, um, <clears throat> or I ordered some books. That's, um, it's called the Alabaster Bible Series. And basically, it's just a company that was started and founded by artists who um, are very, very much into art. And what they did was they started creating Bible books that are exactly according to, they have the this exact words of the Bible. This is my particular favorite translation, which is the New Living Translation. But what they do is they just have in each passage, teams of artists have done different things, some really nice artwork that's there. And um, so if you're interested in one of these, it'll, it'll be $10. Also, just let me know. I mean, that's less than actually what it costs, but I'll be glad to make sure that you get that. If it's just something that you would like to have, you know, I thought about just as little gifts and different things like that. So <clears throat> those are a couple of things, ways that you might be able to put God's Word into your life in an, in an active way. If it's something that helps you good, if it's not, don't worry about it. As we come to the close of this series on daily wisdom from the Proverbs, we get to chapter 30, which is today is what, January 30th. So I want us to look in an in-depth way at Proverbs chapter 30. Now I've stated before that there's so many ways for you to incorporate daily wisdom from God's Word into your life, whether that be reading a proverb each day, which I would encourage you to do. You might take a theme, all different ways to do this. Now, we come today to Proverbs chapter 30, and it's a very unique chapter in the book of Proverbs. Church history and those who study the Bible tend to believe that most of the other parts of Proverbs were incorporated as sayings from Solomon. Okay. Now, when you think about the Bible, it's important to remember that the Bible did not arrive to us via Amazon, UPS, it did not fall down from heaven in this particular state. It's a collection of books, of writings that did not start even as writings, okay? They were prophetic words and utterances that were recorded in much detail and under tremendous pressure and difficulty, okay? And that doesn't diminish anything about the Bible. It actually enhances it in my mind. Over the centuries, this is a record of God's speaking to his people in a special way under inspiration and leaving that as a roadmap for us, okay? And that's important to remember because I think oftentimes in the modern world we forget that, okay? That's why it's not always 
just as black and white as we think. Now, that's not to say it's not absolute truth, because it is absolutely the truth. But we have to kind of <clears throat> figure out the challenges and the differences that are there between the way a modern person might think and the way someone there thought. How was God trying to speak to them and what he spoke to them? How does that apply to me? And so when we study the Bible, you've heard me say many, many times that we have to look at who wrote it, why they wrote it, what's it a part of. And so the Proverbs is this incorporation of wisdom that God wants each person to have written specifically as a as these sayings and these teachings that are to be passed down to someone who is being mentored. Now, the only really ones that we know were not we know for a fact were not written by Solomon are Proverbs chapter 30. And how do we know that? Because the Bible tells us that. So I want you to look right here in just a moment at what Proverbs 30 said, but but before we look at that, I want you to look at the questions that Brendan's fixing to put on the screen here and ask yourself, have you ever asked any of these questions. Have you ever asked the question, man, I'm just too tired to keep going? Have you ever said, man, I, I, I can't do this on my own? Or maybe, have you ever said this, what have I done? I'm such an idiot. Have you ever done, said that? How did I get in this mess? What do I do now? These are universal human questions and statements, right? All of us have experienced either all of these, maybe multiple times. This is a part of human existence. Guess what? Today's chapter in Proverbs answers these questions and answers what do we do when we face these types of questions. Look, the Bible is so relevant. It's not a strictly religious book. It's actually about how to apply God's reality and truth into our daily lives. And so I want us to read for just a moment the first four verses of Proverbs chapter 30. Now these verses are, we found out who they're who. It says, the sayings of Agur, son of Jacob, an inspired utterance. This man's utterance to this other person. We know that from earlier in Proverbs that this is probably during the reign of Hezekiah, but these are holy men who they believe to have an inspired utterance and they record them for us as part of the Bible. And I want you to listen to how raw and how real this man starts this particular chapter. He says, I am weary, O God. I'm weary and I'm worn out. O God, I am too stupid to be human. And I lack common sense. I have not mastered human wisdom, nor do I know the Holy One. This guy's being real. <laughs> what? I'm an idiot. I don't have very good understanding. What's wrong with me? I'm tired. I'm wore out. I'm in a mess. Who but God goes up to heaven and comes back down? Who holds the wind in his fists? Who wraps the oceans in his cloak? Who has created the whole wide world? What is his name and his son's name? Tell me. If you know, this man is crying out because he has problems in his life and he does not have very good understanding. And he's going to share his experience with the reader so that the reader can see, hey, what do you do in your life whenever you're in a mess? When you don't have it figured out, when you're tired, you're tired of your job, you're tired of your relationships, you're tired of yourself, you're tired of the people around you. You're just tired and you don't know if you can go on. <clears throat> this man understood, and he shares with us 
what you have to do when you come to a place like this in your life. It's part of life. So what should I do now is some of the questions that we want to answer. The first thing that becomes very clear that you should do if you find yourself in this place, which we all get to this place at different times. The first thing is, number one, trust God's word. That's the first thing you have to do whenever you're facing these times in life, whenever it is very, very difficult and you are tired and you don't know if you can go on. Look what he says right here. I mean, he, he's been real and open and raw and honest with his struggle. But he says right here, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to all who come to him for protection. Do not add to his words or he may rebuke you and expose you as a liar. Why is it so important to trust every word of God? Because you and I are emotional creatures. We live in a world that is conditional and we're struggling not only with the way we think, but the way other people think, the circumstances that are around us. And we're broken, they're broken, the world is broken. And so as we move through this life, we get to a place where we're at, at our wits end, where we don't know what we're going to do and we don't know if we can keep going there's a reason that we feel this way. And that reason is because there are lots of variables in our life that have us twisted up and are causing us very real difficulty. And in light of that, we can't trust what we feel. We have to be very careful. We've got to filter the way that we feel through what we know to be true. We have to filter what other people say through a filter that we know is true. So we have to trust God's word. It's what will keep us correct in the incorrect world in which we exist. So the first thing, if you find yourself in that place, commit to trusting God's word. Start there. Lay the right foundation. See, if your foundation is off, there's no telling what's going to happen. The second thing that we should do is very clear there. Look what he says. And I'm going to say it like this. you got to ask God, pray. Like trust God's word and pray. And look at the two things he prays for. He prays for truth and contentment. Now these are so critical. Whenever you're going through difficult circumstances, maybe you're watching this online and you, you don't know what you're going to do. You're at a tough place. Trust God's word. And, and even today, every day, maybe every hour, pray for truth. Look what he says. Oh God, I beg two favors from you. I mean, not just, oh dear Lord Jesus, thank you for this food prayer. No, I beg you, God, I need two things. The first one is let me have them before I die. First, help me never to tell a lie. You see, lies don't do anything but destroy. Who's the father of all lies? Lies and confusion and distrust are are destructive to human relationships. They're destructive to businesses. They're destructive in every way. So the first thing he says is help me to see the truth. Because the truth does what? It sets you free. Always pray to God for truth. The second thing, just as important, contentment. He says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Give me just enough to satisfy my needs. Man, how many people are at their wit's end in life? They're discouraged. They have no meaning. They can't figure it out because they can't find contentment. 
They're after something that they cannot grasp. It's like in other places, they're trying to grab the wind or they're trying to hold oil in their hand when they grab it because they can't find contentment. And he specifically talks here about things. He says, look, if I have too much, then I may think I'm too important and then I may turn my back on God. If I don't have enough, what am I liable to do? I'm liable to try to steal from somebody else. And that's the whole point about when you're discontent. You can't be happy. Nothing's enough. And when you don't have enough, you're trying to get more. But guess what? When you get more, it's not enough either. That's why people who have big, big bank accounts and all the fame and fortune in the world still do drugs and still commit suicide and still do all the things that the really poor people do. Why? Because they're not content either. Until you find contentment, you're going to circle in misery and disillusionment. Now, he follows up in the next seven verses, and he gives a description about some of the things that people are discontent about. I want you to look right here. <clears throat> the first one, starting in verse 10. He says, never slander a worker to the employee, or the person will curse you, and you'll pay for it. Some people will curse their father and do not thank their mother. They are pure in their own eyes, but they are filthy and unwashed. They look proudly around, casting disdainful glances. They have teeth like swords and fangs like knives. They devour the poor from the earth and the needy from among humanity. And then he, he starts with an analogy. Remember we talked about that. He says what? The leech has two suckers that cry out, more, more. There are three things that are never enough. No four that say never enough. The grave, the barren womb, the thirsty desert, and a blazing fire. And then he says, The eye that mocks and a, a father and despises a mother's instructions will be plucked out by ravens of the valley and eaten by vultures. He goes through this list of things that are what? Never satisfied. Can't find contentment. The first one is a person who's never happy with the service that anyone provides and they slander other people because it's their fault that such and such happened or this didn't happen. Then they're never satisfied with what their parents did. You know, they curse their father, they blame their mother. It's somebody else's fault. You get the theme right here is when you can't find contentment, it's always because of what someone else has done or not done. It's never enough because inside you aren't happy with who you are. It's always somebody else's fault. And here's the irony. There's plenty of things that you can find fault with in others. They have done plenty of wrong, just like you have. But the problem is, is you can't be content when all you're worried about is what they've done wrong to the point that you can't see what you're doing wrong. And you can't embrace the fact that regardless, regardless of what is happening around me, I get to control how I feel and think about what's going on and how I process this. And part of being content is to own your life. Quit allowing other people to control it and distract you and get you off track. Contentment is huge. Much of Proverbs is about how you find contentment. You don't find it because everything's great. There will be pain. There'll be heartache. There'll be suffering. And the, the Bible is very clear about that. You find contentment by learning to be grateful and taking 
responsibility for your own choices and your own life. And this is what we seek to learn. Now, <clears throat> I want you to notice here what he says happens if you don't find truth and contentment. <laughs> he uses a pretty ugly analogy. He says the ravens of the valley will pluck their eyes out and they're going to be eaten by vultures. Basically, what's going to happen? They're just going to rot away. It's not pretty. Guess what? If you live a lie and you live a life of discontentment, it's not going to end well for you because you can never have enough. Look, just like all these little analogies he uses. I was thinking about it yesterday. David and I lit a big fire. It's kind of what got me all stopped up. And this huge fire, and a fire just can't get enough. The more you put in it, guess what happens? The more it burns. If you've ever been in a desert, if you pour water in the sand, what happens? It just goes. Never enough. Look, one of the things that will destroy meaning in your life is not finding contentment, not finding truth. If every word of God is true, things are not going to end well if you can't make that decision. And this guy here is recorded in the Bible, tells us what's going to happen. Now, <clears throat> we all should strive for truth and contentment. Difficult as they may be, we should be committed to this cause. Now, from here, in the particular chapter that we're looking at, there's some unique things that happen here, so I want to explain. All right, so in this particular chapter, he turns now and he uses a very unique literary device to communicate some truths. So, and I'm going to kind of give you an example of how this works. So if I said to you, knock, knock, what would, what would, what would you say, Jonathan? All right, because why? You know that there's a little literary device that's kind of part of our, you know, existence that if I say knock, knock, you say who's there, and then I'm going to come up with something, right? And, or, or let me give you another one. It would be like, say, if I said roses are red, what would you know was coming next? Violets are blue, right? Because just kind of in our, in our little literary universe, okay, the way we communicate, these are things that, that everybody just knows. I mean, it's not that you ever really sit down, I mean, and there's nothing formal about them. All right, so every language is like that. Well, the ancient language that was written in the Hebrews had a, a unique little literary device that's used here by the writer. And so it's important that you kind of understand how it works. You see, if you don't <clears throat> know, like, knock, knock, who's there and how that works and the implied parts of it, if you're trying to explain it to someone at a different time and all that, it, wouldn't it doesn't really make sense always literally, right? And so that's what we have here. He starts and he gives and closes out this chapter with four little poetic sayings, okay, that are really like that. They're kind of unique there, and it's like where he starts out, and he says this. He says, like, there are three things, no four. All right, and he goes through, and he gives these examples of those. Go to the next slide for me there, Brendan. These four poetic sayings that are found there, to, and we're going to talk about those, but here's what they are. The first one in 18, he says, there are three things that amaze me, no four things that I don't understand. We'll talk about those in a minute. Then in verse 21, he starts another one. He says, there are three things that make the whole earth tremble. No four, it cannot endure. 
In 24, he says, there are four things on earth that are small but unusually wise. Now, why he changed it a little bit there, we don't know. And then in 29, he says, there are three things that walk with stately stride, no four things that strut about. So he uses these four little poetic literary devices to communicate the truth. And so let's look at what they say so that we can try to get at what is he trying to communicate to us, the reader, on how to apply God's wisdom. Like, so the first one in verse 18, the first poetic saying says, Hey, there are three things that amaze me, no four things that I can't or that I don't understand. How an eagle glides through the sky, how a snake slithers on a rock, how a ship navigates the ocean, and how a man loves a woman. So he says here that there are four things that he, he doesn't fully understand and that are somewhat amazing to him. Now, on the simplest of levels, what we can learn from this is he's using things that are very real, very tangible to communicate a truth. And we know that he's trying to communicate truth to who? To young people and old people. And so we should take this as really good advice that when we're trying to communicate what's true to young people, it's very helpful if we use what? physical, concrete things, which is why they do that. Many of you who are teachers, you have little object lessons and you have things in your classroom because what? People can tend to, to understand these concrete things better than they can abstract things. But it's like anything else. Usually things start on a simple level, but there's more behind them, right? And there's something abstract that might be going on behind the scenes. And so we see that here, how an eagle glides through the sky. You know, remember, there, this is a pre-scientific era. Even today, I wonder, man, how does that work? You know, an eagle, it's tremendous physical forces that allow wind shear and resistance and all the things that allow an eagle to fly high. I mean, that's pretty amazing to me, even though I have some scientific knowledge. Imagine for a pre-scientific era how amazing and wonderful this may be to see. What else? How a snake slithers on a rock. I mean, how, how does this all this work together? You know what I'm saying? He uses, he uses the tools that he has. He uses the environment that's around him all to do what? Accomplish something. How a ship navigates the ocean. You know, moves through. A little tiny ship in this big powerful ocean can get from point A to point B. And, true, and these sailors who navigate, they can do it with different winds by the way that they turn the sails. This is an amazing thing. And he also says here how the passion and love between a man and a woman. These things are all, notice, they follow an order, a rhythm. There's something spectacular. There's something amazing and beautiful about order and following the right type of flow. You don't have to fully understand it, but you know whenever it's out of order, when it's out of place. And he says here that it's very important for things to have the right flow, the right order. And whenever things are in order, when things are correctly aligned, if you will, and moving appropriately, guess what? There's beauty. There's wonder. There's amazement. However, and then now he jumps to the second saying, it's not always like that, right? 
because oftentimes the world is out of order. And now he moves in this second poetic saying to give us some examples of how things are out of order. And these are very real things to them. Look what it says right here. There are three things that make the earth tremble. No four, it cannot endure. The first one, a slave who becomes king. Two, an overbearing fool who prospers. Three, a bitter woman who finally gets a husband. Four, a servant girl who supplants her mistress. So all of these things are four literal things that could concretely happen in their world. But when they do, what's happened? Things are out of order. If a slave becomes king, it's going gonna, it's, it's gonna to cause chaos. Things are going to be out of order. And in, the, in the, this world, which is very barbaric, the king had a very important role. Because if you didn't have a strong king with a strong military who could protect things, what happened? The whole world was in chaos. People were raping, pillaging, plundering. And oftentimes, a slave would not have understood all of the dynamics. Not that it was the great, a great system, but it was the system that they had. All of these are examples of things that cause disruption, chaos, conflict. And what the writer wants us to understand is if you want to have a good life, if you want things to work well, you need to find order. You need to find the right flow, putting things in the right place at the right times. Now, we can surmise that possibly he understands some of the chaos because he's gotten himself in a position where he's not in good order. And there's all sorts of problems, and that's why he feels there. I, I, we don't know that, but we can, we can suspect that. All right. But he's saying here, and using these two literary devices, that, hey, find order appropriate things. Follow the design. Make things flow. Because if you don't, you're going to have problems. All right? Now, third, third poetic saying is one maybe many of you have heard. Look what he says right here in verse 24. He says, there are four things on earth that are small but unusually wise. I like the translation that says exceedingly wise. So now what he does is he's going to give us four examples of things that are exceedingly or abundantly or unusually wise. Look what it says right here, the first one. Ants. They aren't strong, but they store up food all summer. Rock badgers. They aren't powerful, but they make home among the rocks. Locusts. They have no king, but they march in formation. Lizards. They are easy to catch, but they are found in king's palaces. He uses this little poetic saying to give us an example of four exceedingly wise things. And they are little exact things. I mean, ants are amazing Some, in so many ways, right? I actually just so happened to see something on, on a little TV show where they took and they, these scientists took and they poured liquid concrete of some sign, like a little lightweight concrete, and they poured into this, it was, it's in, I think, somewhere in Africa, but they poured this concrete down these, these big ants, this big ant mound, okay? Not like a little fire mound, but a big one, all right? And it took 10 tons of this concrete. And it took them weeks to excavate. It went down 30 meters, which is like almost 100 feet. And it was huge. And it was like this city. 
of all these little chambers that had little places, air pockets and stuff like that. And, and, they, the, and it's interesting because, wow, I mean, how did they know how to design it? And the, the, the little argument there was, man, it was almost designed when you saw it like an architect. And so I just found it interesting is that, man, ants, they're able to do this what? And they are able to prepare and they're able to get food and they're able to do that, but they don't even have a, anybody who communicates as a king. Some of you might be going, yeah, but they got a queen. <laughs> so there you go. Now, I can't speak to that. But what I'm saying is they don't have the kind of you know, leadership in the sense that we would think. But what they do have is the ability to prepare, you know, throw something on the ground, any kind of food. And before long, what's going to happen? Those ants are going to find it. And really, that's a, a literal example. But what they're talking about there is what? Preparation. See, things that are exceedingly or unusually wise make the right kinds of preparation. The rock badger, they aren't powerful, but they make their home among the rocks. And hence, they protect themselves from the eagles and things like that. So they're able to use their surroundings to be able to survive. What is that? That's adaptation. Are you able to adapt to the circumstances around you? There's some things you can't control. Look, you can't control certain factors in this life. You wish you could. You wish you could make that pain go away. You wish you could stop this. You wish you could do that. When you encounter those circumstances, do you give up? Do you quit? Do you get mad? Do you do anything? Or do you adapt to make the right kinds of decisions based on the circumstances that are around you? And nothing will define your maturity, in my opinion, more than your ability to adapt to what's going on around you and continue to be faithful. The third one, locusts. They have no king, but they march in formation. Which is really what? Cooperation. How do they know to cooperate together? Somehow they communicate in a way that we don't understand through, through neurochemicals or something, but they cooperate together to move in this formation, and it's impressive. And the Bible uses an example of how we're wise. And I think that's true. Cooperation is a wise thing to do. You know, when you think about all of the different movements of the Christian church of all different sorts, even our particular brand, much of what has happened here through the restoration movement and all of the things that we're a part of have happened because what? Churches cooperated together to do certain things. This has happened with missions throughout history. This has happened in all sorts of ways. It happens in little small ways. It happens as Christians cooperate. You've heard Todd talk about Hey, these, uh, we've got together and we're helping out with the, um, the folks who are having to do in the foster care. Guess what? This is people cooperating to do something together. And hopefully we're cooperating together, not just in our local church, but in all sorts of ways to accomplish God's will. Look, remove cooperation from any experience and what happens? Effectiveness goes out the door. Look, if parents and children quit cooperating, what do we have? Conflict. Husbands and wives aren't cooperating, what do we have? Conflict. If bosses or employers and employees aren't cooperating, what do you got? Look, cooperation is important. 
And if you're wise, you're going to seek out cooperation, not necessarily division. And the last one he says they're lizards. Look, they're easy to catch, but they're found in the king's palaces, meaning they can get anywhere. Even though they don't seem to be important, they're able to be even in the nicest palace. And I'm going to call this one motivation because they can get wherever they need to go. They can climb any wall. They can find a crevice. And look, I believe that motivation is huge. If we're motivated to do the right things, it'll make a big difference. We're willing to do what it takes. Now, the fourth poetic saying, and then we'll be close to being done, it says right here, there are three things that walk with stately stride, no four that strut about. The lion, king of beasts who won't turn aside for anything, the strutting rooster, the male goat, and a king as he leads his army. So now he's saying what? These three things, what is he trying to communicate? I think there are three things that all four of these analogies share in common that are important facets to those who are going to act wisely and who are going to find contentment and find truth and purpose. The first one is courage. Look, you have to have courage if you want to accomplish anything of significance and find contentment. Courage in the face of struggles, courage in the face of success. The Proverbs talks oftentimes about that. You are defined most clearly by how you respond to situations that are really bad and really good. Now think about that. When things are just happy-go-lucky, it's not that big a deal. But whenever you're under extreme difficulty, how you talk, how you act, how you live defines a lot of Do you have courage then? Do you have courage whenever things are great? Because it's very easy to get off track then. As this lion who's, who stands courageously against anything, do you have that kind of courage? It's not easy to muster. The second thing I see in all four of these is confidence. Not just courage, but confidence. I don't know that there's anything more confident than a, than a little strutting rooster. I mean, he's backing down from nothing. If you ever had chickens, you know, I know Josh and them had, some, had a rooster over there. I mean, he, he was confident till his very death, right? He'll attack if you've ever been around a rooster, anything. I mean, he is the picture of confidence. Maybe misplaced <laughs> oftentimes, but he was confident. So you and I should have a healthy confidence about what we're doing. Now, how do we have that type of confidence? By the truth. You see, misplaced confidence is whenever it's not based on the truth. See, the rooster has a lot of confidence, but when he comes up against a bigger adversary, if his confidence is misplaced, he's going to end up what? Confidence misplaced, not based on truth, will end badly. So you got to have courage and you got to have confidence in the truth. The reason truth matters is even though you may end up here, guess what? If you're on the side of truth, your life will live beyond you. You will have died for some purpose because guess what? There were some folks who thought with every nail on that hammer, they were winning, didn't they? When they nailed them in there, Pilate and all the Pharisees, they thought that Jesus had what? Misplaced confidence. But the problem was they didn't know that what he said was true. See, the outcome here is really secondary. It's important, but it's secondary 
to the most important thing, which is the outcome there. And if you live by truth here, guess what? You don't have to worry about any lack of courage or confidence in what will take place there. The third thing you see right there is commitment. Whether it's the lion, the goat, the rooster, or a king, you got to be committed. You got to have a commitment to being the person that God wants you to be. Look, do we all live courageously all the time? No. The writer didn't even. He starts out and he wasn't very courageous. I mean, he's, he even, look, the Bible says, the writer says, I'm, so, I'm, how stupid, I'm so stupid. All right? So you can't always live courageously. You can't always have confidence. You can't always be committed. But guess what? The fact that you don't always do something shouldn't control whether you try always to do something. I mean, this is, this is what wisdom is about, is it's this quest to try to make better decisions. Some people are literally unable to make better decisions because all they can focus on are the prior bad decisions. Or thinking that something, you know, instead of just saying, wait a minute, I gotta, I gotta start right now figuring out how to make better decisions. There's not a single person in here who's of understanding age, okay? If they're beyond understanding like little children, what? They're still under the influence of those above them who are making decisions for them. But there's not a person in here today who could not benefit from seeking God's word to make better decisions. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to get perfect tomorrow. It doesn't mean that you're gonna, not going to fail. Of course, all these things are true, but you have to start. So, so when we close today, we ask, well, what, what should I do now? I mean, we've been doing this for 30 days. Hopefully, many of you have listened. Not, I mean, maybe you missed a day or two. That's okay. But what could you do? I want to leave you with this. There's a lot of things you could do. And certainly, you should look at the specifics of this passage and every passage and apply those. But what I'd really like for you to do today is I'd like for you to commit to making wisdom from God's Word a daily part of your life. I mean, I, I don't see that as a big ask. You know what I'm saying? It's to say, look, you know what? If, if I'm a Christian, the least I could do, the very least I could do, if you're watching this, is look, I'm going to make a commitment that every day I'm going to try to, to incorporate some of God's wisdom, His truth into my life. Maybe, maybe it's as simple as this, and that's what I was doing about that, you know, is getting a little deal like that so that every morning when you drink coffee, it's a reminder to you. Maybe it's a little book. Maybe it's sign up for a podcast. May, whatever it is. I mean, I, I'm not, you, you can figure all that out. You're, you're big enough to do that. But, but it won't happen if you don't make a commitment that you're going to put some of God's daily word into your life. If you do that, man, what, what could happen? You don't know. As a, as a motivation for that, you know that song y'all did, Jonathan? I love that song, Above All. But the part that really gets me in that song is when it says, he took the fall. I mean, Jesus, he took the fall for you and me. See, too many of us, we're trying to do what? We're trying to take the credit. 
we're trying to give blame. Jesus was perfect. Righteous, just, did everything God ever asked him to do. But he took the fall for every one of us. Let me ask you a question. <laughs> if Jesus was willing to take the fall for you, for every bad thing you ever said, every bad thing you ever did, every good thing you didn't do, all the failures that you and I make, couldn't we at least commit to saying, God, I want to hear what you have to say each and every day, even if it's something little. Start listening and putting his wisdom into our life. A God who will take the fall for you, he's got your best interest at heart. It's not to try to keep you from something that's going to be good. It's to give you what's going to be best. And so I hope that this 30 days of daily wisdom is something that you will continue on. It's something that has been very meaningful in my life, and I hope that it will continue to be for you as well. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for all that you do for us. Lord, we're grateful that you don't expect perfection. We confess that too often we are less than what we would have hoped to be. We fall victim to our own bad decision-making and the decision-making of others, and we don't always do what's right. Even those who helped write the Bible struggled. But we are so grateful for Jesus and the fact that he forgives us and that he took the fall for us. I pray, Lord, that each of us today who have accepted his free gift to take our fall would want to live daily in a more purposeful, meaningful, wise manner in gratitude for what Jesus did and as a way to show others about the life that you have for them. We ask this in Christ's name.